Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. You can find the link in the sidebar on the NBN website. Today, my guest is Cynthia Miller Idris, author of the book Hate in the Homeland. The New Global Far Right, published by Princeton University Press this year in 2020. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, Where are you joining us from? I'm in Washington, D.C. in my basement. uh, We're doing (laughs) a lot of... uh, a lot of meetings and work these days, just like uh, many of many of your listeners, unfortunately, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Yes, well, I'm I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, and and the technology is connecting us as if we're in the same room. <laughs> Terrific. All right. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, just to start off the interview, like what we uh, normally do here at NBN, is we'd like to ask you to. Just tell us a bit about your background, and in particular, as it relates to the subject of this book. Yeah, I um, I think the important thing probably to to know is that I consider myself an accidental expert on the far right, meaning that I never set out to study the far right. I wasn't intending to focus on extremism. I was interested in um, how schools respond to hate or to challenges with. Um, Kind of resurgent extremism. So in a sense, I did have an interest in extremism, but I was interested in teachers and school-based responses. And I was studying it in Germany for nearly 20 years. Uh, I was a German major as an undergraduate. I was really interested in their vocational system. So I saw myself really, I've been a professor of education um, for 20 years now. So I saw myself really as a person who looked at schools and educational responses to um, how to address rising hate or rising extremism. And uh, and then eventually I wrote a book that um, was tracing the modernization of far-right youth culture in Germany, the new aesthetic shifts, the way that things look differently now than they used to, the, the death of the sort of racist skinhead look, the shaved head, the bomber jackets, and the replacement with something much more mainstream. And I finished that book um, and sent it off just two months before Charlottesville happened here in the U.S., when we saw, you know, scores of young men marching in khakis and polo shirts and, and, and in a real rebranding of what, um, we recognize to be far right extremism. And, and so, uh, things took a turn for me and I became called upon much more often to explain what was happening with far right youth culture, with the mainstreaming and the normalization, and, uh, eventually decided that this book um, would be something that might help the public and policymakers and parents really understand um, what where the risks are and, and what's happening with young people. 
Okay. Oh, were you a teacher yourself? I was not a teacher. I come from a family of teachers. My mother was a teacher and a school administrator. Um, my father worked at a uh, at a university for a long time, a college as a chaplain, but also taught. And uh, so I just um, grew up around teachers and educators. Um, most of my relatives are in that field, and and um, didn't. I mean, I became eventually a college teacher, but I uh, I never taught except for as a substitute in the in the uh, lower grades, but have always been interested in education and schools and whether and how schools might do a better job at protecting vulnerable students. And, um, and so this part of it was, and, and in Germany, you know, dealing with the legacy of the Holocaust, um, it's been, there's just a much, much bigger effort over the years to um, address resurgent far-right extremism. So it, ha- it was and has been a really good place to understand how societies can do things differently. I just never expected it to be so relevant, you know, in my own country. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I one of the reasons I had asked too is that um, your focus on German youth culture. I, I know um, as a as a teacher, one would be exposed to all the you know various fashions and the little subcultures and cliques and all that kind of stuff. Um, did, did you do sort of participant, op- no, well, not participant observation, yeah. but a kind of ethnographic research? Or, or- I did. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay, for the okay. first, my first book, I spent nearly a year and a half, um, kind of hanging around in, uh, three vocational schools in Germany, um, where I was closer in age to the students at that time. I was a doctoral right. student, but I, um, kind of identified with the teachers and the teachers sort of took me under their wing and brought me into the you know, uh, the teacher's lounges and took me home for, for coffee and cake. And, and, uh, so I really got to know the teachers very well, but also observed their classrooms, the civics classrooms and, um, and interviewed students and then stayed in touch with many of those teachers and with the folks in the education system who had approved my study and my ability to be in those schools, um, ethically even, you know, that takes a while to get through the process of being approved to do research in schools. So, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of relationships there in those schools in Berlin, and I'm really very grateful to those teachers, but it was fascinating also to spend time just observing young people, observing, um, in the back of classrooms, how they engage, what they talk about, they fall asleep. I mean, all the things that you can imagine, you know, yeah. happen in classrooms and, uh, and understanding how, how teachers were grappling with, trying to reach young people while they still had a chance to before they're kind of out of the public education system out on their own. I think the teachers felt a real sense of uh, compulsion and compassion and, and the importance of, of, um, of really trying to reach young people while they're still there. Right. Um, I, I want to get to your definition of, of the far right. I, you spend you know some time actually because you you recognize in the book that you know it's it's uh, I think the term you use is it's the best bad term. Yes, but yeah, because uh, it's it's hard to define. Um, yes, can you uh, walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's especially hard to define. It's hard to define within any one country, and it's even harder to define across countries. So when you're trying to talk about something global, it gets even more complicated. But um, and I would say it's gotten harder to define as time has gone by. So I don't like the term far right extremism, but it is, as I describe in the book, what I feel is right now the best bad term to capture the phenomenon 
Um, and so I try in the beginning of the book to kind of break down what falls into that category. And really, uh, you know, you have in terms of the percentage of the types of kinds of things that happen, the majority of far right extremism is comprised of white supremacist extremism, what we think of as um, as white nationalist, neo-Nazi groups, that entire spectrum. But there is also um, uh, a range of militia, anti-government extremist groups, and then some what we call single issue extremist groups like anti-abortion extremists who, you know, enact violence against clinics or doctors and those kinds of things. So those all fall into the same spectrum of far-right extremism, which is characterized by some combination of really four things. One is anti, anti-democratic kinds of attitudes and beliefs. So either, you know, a failing to protect the rights of minorities or promoting authoritarianism or reducing freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Um, a second would be um, hierarchies of superiority and inferiority between groups. So that could be male supremacy, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, um, but a belief that they're, you know, um, inferior and, and superior groups of people and set up in hierarchies and that, that the people who are superior are entitled to more things, whether that's land or power or resources. Um, a third element is uh, conspiracies and conspirational narratives about uh, an orchestrated great replacement, for example, that's a big one, or what, what here in this country people have called white genocide. In Europe, often called Eurabia, the, the conspiracy that Europe is going to turn into some kind of um, Arab majority or Muslim majority country, and that that's been orchestrated, that that's an intentional effort by an organized group of people um, to, uh, to replace white societies and civilizations. Uh, and then the fourth category is about the use of violence. And so that's where we're looking at the terrorist and extremist fringe who are willing to, or not only willing to, but believe in um, the the moral objective of using violence to bring about the downfall of systems and replace them with a kind of reborn, restorative narrative. And you'll see similar kinds of things with the uh, in Islamist extremism, with the idea of restoring a caliphate, um, as you do with white supremacists who believe they're going to restore or create some kind of white ethno state. So it's not limited to only the far right, these kinds of fantastical narratives or, or ideas about restoration and violence. But uh, those are kind of the threads of common elements. Not all groups on the spectrum hold all of those things at the same time, but those tend to be the elements that, um, that, that collect, you know, a sense of anti-immigration or, or Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, all of those kinds of hierarchies and the and a kind of dehumanizing narrative that is threaded through them are is is sort of what the major elements are. So that's a lot I know to to capture, but um, you know that tends to be where uh, what, what captures what ca- what's captured by the term far right. And you know the last thing I'll say about that is that the reason why I think it's especially difficult is that other countries use different terms, and so. In Germany, they use the term right-wing extremism or right-wing radicalism, where right-wing extremism are, are actually um, classified, counted uh, in incidents and crimes that are outside of the bounds of the Constitution that are considered to be illegal. Um, and right-wing radicalism is defined as troubling, but not illegal. So things that might be watched or concerning, but, but wouldn't 
you know, constitute um, the level of, of a criminal act. We have different kinds of categories and classifications here around what constitutes a hate crime, for example, um, that that doesn't fit in necessarily clearly to that kind of uh, inside or outside the bounds of the Constitution. And then you have in Europe, for example, formal far right parties that have been elected into parliaments. And so that gets complicated, too, in terms of, you know, you can't just say these are you know, elected parties that have been elected, but are also pursuing and, you know, um, a, you know, ex- extreme right wing objectives and consider themselves right wing extreme parties even. So th- that's why the, the categories are, are not that satisfying. But um, and and I would say, finally, are even fragmenting in the sense that you're seeing coalitions of of groups, let's say, anti-vaxxers combined with anti-government extremists to protest shelter in place orders. So you do see some new coalitions forming across the left and the right spectrum. But it is, uh, there's still some truth to the idea of that kind of spectrum and some way to capture what we're talking about within it. And so the best bad term for me is still far-right extremism. Yeah, I, I totally understand um, the the complexity and, and especially as you get to understand the groups, uh, you know, there are, there are rivalries between them and, and right. just like in any, you know, just like on the left, the Trotskyists and the, you know, anarcho-feminists mm-hmm. and whatever. It's, you know, it, it, it's a similar sort of a splinter. Um, I, just, uh, I just wanted to ask you to go back a bit to your... Um, congressional hearing yes. uh, in September 2019 and uh, I I would imagine that that had a uh, you know a lot of overlap with the book I don't know if it, it yes. went into actually making uh, the book or whatever but if you could uh, explain that, that yeah I I testified at a hearing on um, about global the global threats from white nationalist terrorism and um, so parts of this in fact parts of those definitions um, are in that written testimony as well um, when I was trying to explain uh, what the elements are that we should be concerned about and particularly with the use of violence and the valorization of violence um, and the way in which violence is framed in heroic terms um, when it gets to the kind of, you know, the, the conspirational uh, kinds of narratives that motivated the Christchurch shooter or the Pittsburgh shooter or El Paso, where they really believe that there's a kind of heroic and moral objective there to save their people. Um, and how someone might come to believe that kind of conspirational narrative. So um, that was, you know, I will say that was one of the stranger moments of my career and a sort of sort of a turning point when I described my earlier career. I really did think of myself as a subcultural scholar, a scholar of subcultural fringe groups, an area studies scholar, a German studies scholar, um, you know, cultural sociologist, somebody who studies symbols and iconography. And I was writing a book about t-shirts. And so to go from that book about t-shirts to like two years later, testifying before Congress was a real kind of a whiplash, um, moment in, in terms of, you know, still feeling very surprised that the things that I know are relevant to, you know, public policy. And, um, and so that I would say that's, that was the strangest thing about that, but, but, Giving that testimony and and all that followed, which was a lot more invitations to speak to other policymakers and uh, law enforcement here in the U.S. and and also globally, um, and provide briefings for other agencies and and groups. I think 
um, made me realize that that some of the things that I had learned through all of that subcultural research was useful or could be relevant. And, and so in many ways, I think was the turning point in, in helping me think that, um, that the book would be something that should be written. I was already writing the book at that point, had decided to, but it, I think it took a, on a greater sense of urgency around that time as we started to realize that the, the numbers of plots um, foiled by the FBI were increasing the circulation of white supremacist propaganda was at an all-time high. Um, and, you know, the, the hate incidents, the numbers of hate groups, I mean, and basically every measure that we have available, it had become very clear and was repeatedly brought up in different hearings before Congress that, that white supremacist extremism had increased and was increasing and the threat of violence was still increasing. And so, um, you know, it, it, the book did take on a sense of urgency and I felt very compelled to write it and get it out as quickly as possible, which, as you know, you know, takes quite some time with mm-hmm. the production process and the editing and everything. So it still took a year, but it was a faster writing and turnaround than certainly anything I've ever written before. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally uh, um, sympathize with your story. I remember coming back uh, from doing my PhD in the UK and I was looking at the you know uh, arcane details of of Trinidadian um, political history and whatnot and things I thought nobody would be interested yes. in and then and when I came back we were in like a constitutional crisis we had three elections in three years and I became so in demand on, on right. like a, on all these things I never ever thought other people would be interested in so I could totally understand yes how. that's exactly the the feeling of of you know like I keep telling people I keep hoping and. I'll become irrelevant again. It would be really nice to, 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 to slip back into, you know, um, you know, cause it is sad also to have this kind of expertise, yeah. at least your kind of expertise, you know, is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not so depressing to, to realize why it's relevant. Um, but, uh, yes, I think for a lot of scholars whose expertise is suddenly thrust, who, who didn't pursue necessarily a, career in public policy. I mean, it didn't do a major, you know, dissertation on terrorism, right? I wasn't looking or seeking to become an expert in that way. And, um, and so it is very surprising, but I also, and I'm sure this is the case for you too, have, you know, one of the things I did also urge in that testimony, I said to, you know, lawmakers asked, what could they be doing? And one of the things, in addition to kind of the short-term and immediate responses that everybody wants to hear about, um, I told them, I think, you know, it's really important to look at a person like me who, you know, had major investments by the U.S. government and by the German government in repeated funding opportunities from the National Science Foundation, from a U.S. Congressional Fellowship, you know, from um, German funding opportunities from their government, many of which don't exist anymore because those funding lines have been cut. And so when you look at you know, those investments that took 20 years of work to come back to relevance, um, but I think have been useful and I'd like to think are helpful. Um, you know, I would like to think that we have and can make similar investments in young people and students today to kind of incubate the expertise and the ideas that might be relevant 20 years into the future that we can't possibly know what that would be. So, so I do get a little worried sometimes that the more short-sighted kinds of responses and, and not seeing the investment in long-term, you know, exchange fellowships, time abroad, time in the archives, you know, time to do ethnographies, 
that build up expertise over time that that does come back around, I think, into into um, contributing useful knowledge, but just maybe not in the short term. Yeah, yeah, I I um I I, sh- I share your concern. I I I wanted to. Yeah. I think related to that, in a sense, is um, the difficulties we were talking about that you were talking about earlier about the definition of far right, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, as you noted, the um, for example, uh, Islamists share a lot of these um, uh, characteristics: you know, anti-democratic ideology, hierarchies, conspiracies, use of violence. Um, and then, and then even people on the the far left, like mm-hmm. you know, for example, you know, Antifa, certain anarchist groups, mm-hmm. uh, have have many of, of these same things. And and as you mentioned, uh, sometimes there are even um, coalitions, um, you know, yeah. uh, c- coming across. And 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 then even sometimes p- people uh, views that were once considered, um, you know, maybe a little edgy at one time. So sometimes quite center are now considered, mm-hmm. um, you know, people might say white supremacists for, you know, what Obama, for example, might have had as his immigrant, you know, his immigration policy, certainly Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, or even, you know, uh, I mean, Bill Clinton and then Hillary Clinton, uh, her position on, on gay marriage 10 years ago, uh, what it would have been seen today. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you don't even have to go 10 years ago to see h- how these positions are uh, being reevaluated. The Overton window is shifting exactly. and, and it becomes so, uh, you know, difficult and slippery to you know, to to even categorize these things anymore, and um, and then there are people. I I would have to confess that you know I've gotten caught you know in this maelstrom because um, I you know my YouTube channel has been shadow banned because of certain interviews because I deal with a lot of uh, topics around third world nationalism, mm-hmm. for example, you know, and and uh, a lot of the, the issues uh, and and subject areas you know, um, overlap with all types of nationalism. And because there's this hostility towards um, national, the rise of nationalism in Germany and, uh, the well, Europe and the United States, uh, you know, I, I got caught up as, you know, I, you can't see me, but I'm of Indian descent. I mean, I live in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. but, you know, I'm getting labeled, you know, like I'm a white supremacist, which is, right. it, which is insane, you know, but right. um, I, I, I don't know if you have any sort of comments uh, or reflections on that phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, I mean, first of all, we've seen, you know, this idea of, you mentioned the Overton window, which I think is just a really, I also talk about it in the book, this idea that, um, you know, it's the idea that there's a an ex, a public a, a window. If so, you know, it comes from a metaphor where the person who created it actually sh- had a little slider with like a little um, plastic window where you could see the, a range of public policy solutions to something like, let's say, mandatory schooling. Um, and the the range would include, you know, there's no policy at all. All parents get to decide whether their kids go to school or how and when. Versus, you know, every child must be in school and there's no alternatives. And then there's a range of policy solutions in between that are deemed acceptable at any one time. And that, you know, how much control should the state have or how much can the state mandate, 
you know, into the private decision-making of families about whether they send their kids to school. And so those things have, have evolved over time for different age groups, for different, um, you know, whether we allow homeschooling and under what conditions. And so the, um, the, the window itself, the argument is that that window moves, right? And so whatever fits inside the window of acceptable public policy solutions is what, is what we all agree there's public support for, sufficient pu- public support for. And sometimes you have rapid shifts in, those, in that Overton window, often which come about through grassroots mobilization. And so you'll see that on the left with things like, you know, very rapid shift for support for same-sex marriage, let's say. Um, and so that suddenly goes from being something that is outside of the Overton window to something that's inside the Overton window. But we've also seen it on, uh, on the right on things like um, immigration, uh, immigration bans, uh, immigration policy, support for a border wall, support for stricter measures on immigration, let's say. And so, uh, you know, individuals will within grassroots efforts on both the far right or the far left or in between, we'll try to make concerted efforts to move that Overton window in order to get those public policies, you know, the, the window shifted further to the right or to the left. So I think that's one thing that's just important for people to understand is that that's always going on, that the far right isn't only a, um, a movement that is, you know, out in the streets fighting and in street battles or protests or, you're plotting terrorist attacks, but there are also efforts to work to build the intellectual capacity and the and the public policy making leadership. And so I do talk about that in the book as well, a chapter on efforts to kind of build the um, you know, the 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 social science expertise even and wield that as as ways to create public policy support. But the other aspect of what you're talking about is really interesting um, around uh, who gets to decide. Um, whether, you know, what, what, a, what a particular label is. And one of the things I remember is after 9-11, um, a number of international, like in, in many different international contexts, suddenly groups that have previously been considered rebel groups in protracted conflicts with governments were, na- were, were suddenly renamed extremist groups. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was this vocabulary shift in order to garner more international support for um, kind of suppression of those rebel groups in, in places with, without really clear democratic practices, let's say. And so I think we can use and wield these labels in ways that are, that are not productive either. And, and so one of the reasons why I want to spend so much, and I do spend so much time in the book talking about the labels that we use um, is that obviously, you know, there's a lot of, uh, potential bias that can go into any labeling of one group, a nationalist group versus um, a rebel group versus a, a extremist group. And those can serve the interests of, of people in power too, or people without power. Um, one of the things that happened in that testimony was, was someone, one of the um, lawmakers asked me a question about um, the term uh, white nationalism and that you know, as a term I don't like to use because I think it softens um, white supremacist extremism and makes it seem a like it's not so problematic, but also makes it seem like it's just a domestic issue and not a global issue. And so I prefer the term white supremacist extremism. But he said, you know, some of his constituents were complaining that um, that they weren't even allowed to be patriots anymore. That if you're, you know, if you're if you're patriotic, you're you're called a white nationalist if you happen to be white. And so. You know, we had this discussion at that time about 
um, about those labels and why being, you know, called a white nationalist is something different than being nationalist is still something different from being patriotic or being a patriot and, and how those there's blurriness between those lines. But, um, but that generally, you know, they, that people have to understand where those, where those lines get drawn is movable and often wielded in ways that, that aren't necessarily about, you know, what they actually mean, but about how the, the definitions change and are, and are changed by people who, and whose interest it is to change them. Um, and so, you know, I try to use, and I know a lot of my colleagues try to use the term white supremacist extremism to be very clear about what we're talking about. This is not just about, um, you know, uh, some people say, well, it's about white civil rights, right? Within far right mm-hmm. scenes, they'll say that. That's right. Well, no, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about, um, you know, hierarchies of superiority and inferiority and a sense of entitlement to land and policies that people are putting forward to move forward with an ethnostate or re- re-migration and deportation. And, um, and so being very clear on how those policies play out and what the proposals look like, because these groups do have proposals as well for those kinds of things. Um, make it very clear this isn't just about somebody's civil rights or their right to be proud of their identity or their heritage or their um, nationality. This is something else. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that's a, I think it's an important point that the uh, I believe the congressman or congressperson mm-hmm. raised to you um, about you know uh, you know someone waving an American flag. I mean, the Overton window has shifted so much in in certain areas. I mean, um, that uh, because I suppose it's not universally um, shifted, but but uh, and I suppose where that difference is is interesting because the media too is produced in a certain space and, and mm-hmm. it might be commenting on people in other spaces where waving an American flag is is perfectly normal and and laudable, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but it's uh, you know in in kind of New York context where all the uh, TV stations are, uh, you know, um, many people are of the view that, you know, it's a, the flag itself is a, you know, is, is a symbol of hate. There, there are people who, who actually, you know, um, put forth that position. And so, you, you know, you get, you know, some really uh, um, intractable, well, I don't know if it's intractable problems, but very, very uh, problematic. Yeah, politicized, <laughs> highly politicized. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I was, uh, I had I moved back from Germany after that first year of field work in the schools that I talked about earlier, just about 10 days before 9-11. So I moved from a country where it was really impossible at that time to wave a German flag. Um, there was, uh, it, you know, it was completely associated with extreme nationalism yeah. and, and you wouldn't, you don't see them on flying in front of school buildings or you you wouldn't see it hanging out of someone's building on a holiday or something like that. That's changed a little bit thanks to the World Cup, but um, which is interesting how soccer can drive change on issues of patriotism. But but um, but at that time, you know, in in 2000, you really, really couldn't. And there was a narrative that was very strong in Germany, which I talked about in that first book about, um, you know, even seeing it in textbooks saying there's no cause to be proud of being German because you didn't do anything to be German except be born here. So there's this, you know, extreme anti-pride narrative in Germany at that time. And I came back and 10 days later, 9-11 happens here and I've never seen so many flags in my life. Right. Right. Again, speaking of like kind of whiplash, I just, there was the opposite at that time. There was this real compulsion 
I think, you know, we would talk to taxi cab drivers and um, small business owners who felt who were of immigrant background and who felt really compelled to put up the flag as a sign um, and as an external symbol, you know, not just how they felt to support the country, but also because they were afraid that if they didn't, they would be regarded as, you know, not patriotic or not supportive mm-hmm. or, or even worse. And so um, I think for a long time that, that, that lingered on, you know, for many, many years, a kind of very strong symbolic patriotism and representation of the flag. And then the last few years, it, it, I agree. I think that iconography has gotten, you know, much more complicated. I mean, I still see even in my neighborhood in DC, a lot of flags out on people's houses. And I think um, we do have, especially now in this time when everyone is stuck at home and taking long walks in the neighborhood, you know, I think we do, mm-hmm. you do see, um, see that, but the flag, you know, we have had a lot of co-opting of the flag with, um, you know, a Hawaiian flag, you know, Hawaiian uh, shirt pattern in the middle of it to represent the boo-boo scenes or, um, you know, a blue line down the middle for blue lives matter, a red line down the middle to support, um, uh, you know, firefighters. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which these have just become, um, you know, inter- patriotism intertwined with support for other groups. And sometimes, you know, in the case of the Boogaloo, like a militia or extremist group and other times just trying to be pro-police or pro-first um, responder. Uh, so it, it just has become a much more politicized uh, thing than it, than I think it had been for for years, although there are people who study the flag who will tell you it always has been. I mean, the debates about whether we say the Pledge of Allegiance in classrooms and the debates about, you know, where the flag should be and, and, and hang, I think, have, have long been highly politicized in the U.S. As a uh, sociologist, as a, uh, a symbolic sociologist, I, I suppose you'd also be sensitive to, to the issue, which when I was reading through, um, you know, this definitional part, which which always intrigues me mm-hmm. on this kind of stuff, um, there, there's always a problem of of, of an external um, uh, observer defining a, a group, um, yeah. as especially when when that group has their own uh, definitions of themselves, and um, and and especially um, if the external group is hostile. Right. So, and, and I think this, um, you know, for instance, in, in the, uh, the Proud Boys controversy that's, mm-hmm. that's happening right now, um, I mean, the way th- they just, dis- and I, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, it, it pr- opens the door f- uh, for a lot of misunderstanding uh, and, yeah. um, and labeling, you know, the, the, the leader of the Proud Boys is a, a black man. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's being labeled a white supremacist, which um, which I th- right. which I also think is um, uh, not helpful. Uh, let me put it yeah. that way. And yeah. uh, but um, but at the same time, I mean, I I understand, especially from your point of view. I mean, you you are not necessarily trying to to paint uh, a whole group um, with this label, yeah, but might be f- fringes of various groups that might have you know certain right. amounts you know a certain amount of le- legitimacy. But then on the fringes of all these groups, uh, you know, you get into what you are trying to to look at, which is the white ex, um, white supremacist extremism. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Do, and was I think that, that an issue for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, I think the Proud Boys and is a good example of a, of why I think the 
the term far right is important in terms of like capturing a broader spectrum, uh, you know, of, of groups that are, you know, including these sort of incel involuntary celibate or, you know, male supremacist groups that are out there that aren't really, sometimes they have intersections with white supremacist extremism. Sometimes they're aligned with it, but it's, it's just, you know, I would say I use the term far right because I'm talking about a whole spectrum of groups, most of whom, you know, just statistically based on the data sets at uh, the start center on terrorism, they do trace terrorist acts. The majority of far right violence and extremist violence is white supremacist in nature, but it's not all of it. Right. And so you do have this broader intersections with militia movements, with groups like the Proud Boys, with, you know, that, that I think are, you know, where you have anti-government extremism or uh, pro, you know, say misogynistic uh, ideas or pro-Western, uh, mm. you know, ideas that are aligned with or maybe attractive to. Same thing with the Boogaloo, which is not a white supremacist movement or group per se, but there are white supremacists who have joined that group um, because they are attracted to the civil war, the call for civil wars and anti-government extremism. So I think if you had, if you actually mapped it out iconographically, you know, iconographically, you'd have all of these overlapping Venn diagrams in really yeah. messing ways. Um, and that's why I, I do use this messy term, the far right, but understanding that there's, you know, these are not for the most part, like fixed groups with really clear, like membership lists and ideologies, even yeah. it's, especially when it talk, when, when we're talking about youth, which is what I'm interested in. And they're mostly self-radicalizing online. There is a kind of choose your own adventure nature to what they encounter and they they run into this content that is white supremacist or that is misogynist or anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or whatever it is. And they kind of build their own, you know, um, uh, ways of thinking that are radicalized and then sometimes latch onto a group um, that that might help direct them like the Bulu scene that mm -hmm. directs their anger you know, toward anti-government shelter in place orders or second amendment rights or whatever it is. And, and again, some of those people are mobilized by white supremacist ideas, but, but not all of them. And so that's why I think it gets very difficult for the public to understand when you see something like the proud boys on the far right, that is may have members that are attracted to it through white supremacist ideas, but has have others that are attracted to it for the men's, you know, the kind of the male, um, yeah. <laughs> The masculine yes sort of yeah ideas and and whatnot yeah so yeah. it's so then you have individuals representing that group that are saying things out there that might not you know that it's not like they're they're very clear um mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's messier at the edges i think and leads into other things and so that's where I think even when we get to something like Boogaloo scenes, these guys with Hawaiian shirts, I always say, I don't even like to talk about them as a movement. I think they're not even, you know, they're like a scene, like a, yeah. um, you know, it's just a music scene. Or yeah, exactly. Scene. It evolves. And it's, you know, I, I don't think they are, as you said earlier, these groups even are completely in agreement within themselves often about what they are um, or represent, mm -hmm. much less being able, you know, so I think it's really important as experts to sort of say, look, there are limits. We can't, you know, you can't clearly define this, but when you're trying to do it in a 30 second soundbite for the media, that is really, that is really, really challenging. And, and I think some of the misunderstandings also come from the ways in which 
unfortunately, just by nature of the media, not out of any intention yeah. or ill will, but sound bites get picked up and only 30 seconds of an interview gets used that depicts one part of a much more complex story. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I love these longer conversations when you actually can get into some of the messiness. Precisely. You know, I, and I mean, we, we spent a lot of time on, on the definition uh, mm -hmm. because it's something I think is, is very important and, and it becomes more and more relevant as, as, as yeah. groups and individuals are being targeted for, you know, um, mm -hmm. for various reasons, for being banned on social media or <laughs> ostracized by their social groups or peers or whatever. Yeah. Um, the definitions do become important. But really, the, the focus of your book is actually not the definition. That's it's, right. it's really um, the process of radicalization. And, and it's interesting, uh, the angle you take, um, uh, because it's it's not the normal uh, or, or the, the usual one of, you know, well, how does someone, you know, get involved in these groups or, or how? Well, a, a bit of how, but yeah. or the, the why. Uh, mm -hmm. But you are looking at more, uh, I, I suppose, from a real kind of sociological perspective, where and when. So where the, the places and, and uh, yeah, the, the places yeah. and the times. And, and that opens up a, a whole new angle. It's, it's really interesting. If I just read out what you have here, you, you know, you talk about these gateways, um, cultural spaces like far-right coffee shops, pop and country music, clothing brands, fight and fitness clubs, and mixed martial art scenes, schools and college campuses, social media and online spaces, clubs and soccer stadiums and spaces and places are specific to micro uh, communities. So all, and, and I suppose it, it, it overlaps with what we were talking about um, where, you, you know, you have legitimate spaces, but, the, you know, on, on the fringes is the, the part you're concerned about. So you look at all these um, spaces where I suppose the fringe kind of takes you into this um, white supremacist extremism. So, uh, yeah, could you just uh, uh, elaborate on, you know, on that and some of the more interesting places? Yeah. I, I, yeah well, one of the ones that, that was surprising to me, because I, I'm familiar with a lot of it and I'm very interested in it, but one that, that was surprising was, uh, um, I'm trying to find it now, but a, a cooking the cooking show. Recipe. Yes, I know. Yeah. This is this was a real rabbit hole for me too. I have to say, while I was doing the research for the book, yeah. um, it was, uh, and it, you know, it's one of those ones that um, surprises everyone and then starts to make more sense once you dig a little deeper into it. But I think, you know, what we're seeing is, um, in general, first of all, this is this is a set of spaces that is more attractive to women, and I think that's a really interesting um, part of the phenomenon is that we've had a number of women get involved through YouTube videos and, and um, video blogs, uh, vlogs and, and sort of TV shows that are broadcast on YouTube through the far right uh, networks that will blend kind of, um, you know, a, a visual style that is really attractive to kind of an Instagram generation of, of like home and millennial kind of homemaking and, um, you know, uh, organic gardening, backyard homesteading, kind of do-it-yourself aesthetic that is really attractive, I think, to this generation that has been totally let down by capitalist society and is, you know, re retreating in many ways to kind of a, um, uh, you know, 
much more DIY, do it yourself mm-hmm. kind of lifestyle and, and combined with a lot of wellness culture. Right. And yeah. so, you know, yoga and fitness and, but also just wellness and drinking kombucha or whatever it is that, you know, kind of tease. And so you had these women who were, um, sort of, uh, starting, you know, vlogs that were recipes and, but also sharing kind of tips for, um, being a submissive wife, a good wife, uh, uh, you know, having a white baby challenge, how many white babies can you have? Like sort of infusing a lot of those, um, those kind of elements that were popular or are popular, let's say with millennials in particular with, you know, promoting European heritage or, um, uh, or protecting your own identity. And so infusing some softer types of ideology and then not always softer types of ideology. I mean, there really was a white baby challenge, um, issued by a woman who, you know, was, was in the context of demographic shifts and immigration saying, you know, this is your obligation as white women to have white babies. And so there's that kind of thing too, but, but that, you know, there is a, I mean, it's very fringe, but in Germany, there was a, uh, you know, a YouTube, um, uh, cooking channel set up by, um, German neo-Nazis that was a vegan cooking channel. Right. And so they were wearing balaclavas and, you know, actually just had set, had it set up to, to share, show them cooking a recipe while sharing ideology that was, you know, anti-immigrant or neo-Nazi in nature. And so I think a lot of this is, it gets to the issue of, you know, kind of youth culture and not everybody just is going to go listen to like ideology nonstop or read manifestos and, you know, be serious all the time. They also have like regular lives and interests. And, um, and I think that online spaces have, have been a way to weaponize that and to connect by connecting with people in, in their, in places that they might anyway, want to spend time in, um, whether that's in combat sports or the mixed martial arts or, or, uh, you know, a wellness community or in, um, you know, kind of how to videos. I had somebody else tell me recently that they were going, they went to YouTube to look for videos on how to, um, how to install drywall. And it's a series of videos. And by the time they got to video three or four from this guy, they realized that he was starting to introduce actual white supremacist extremist ideology while he was telling you how to do drywall. And by the time you get to like video 11 or whatever you need to get through to finish the job, um, you know, it was full on kind of, um, ideological, um, you know, sharing of, of pretty extreme ideas. And so I, I think, you know, on the, is that, is that intentional? Is that orchestrated? I don't know, you know, but it's, I think it becomes a, people who ha- hold these ideas also have other interests and, and skills and expertise, and sometimes might be doing that, you know, um, you know, just coincidentally, but sometimes it's also a very clear recruitment strategy and, a way of drawing people in through their interests and kind of meeting them where they are. And so one of the things that I wanted to point out in the book is that, you know, we in the field of people trying to think about interventions and prevention of violence, you know, spend so much time thinking about both the top-down tactics and strategies of these groups and the kind of bottom-up, you know, why people would be attracted to this cognitively. Um, but but those approaches leave us with very few ideas about how to intervene or where to intervene. And so what I suggest is that if we just ask these questions about where exposure happens, like where are people encountering the ideas and can we find those early gateways and, and find partners in those spaces and places to help 
intervene and counteract maybe the the potential for them to be exposed and radicalized in the spaces. And that might be one strategy for engaging. So there are some nascent initiatives to do this in the mixed martial arts scenes, for example, which is one place where we know there is a lot of um, recruitment, even though, of course, this is like the fastest growing sport in the world. And the vast majority of people engaging in combat sports and, and mixed martial arts have nothing to do with you know, far-right extremism or white supremacist ideology, but it is a place that is attractive to the far-right because it intersects with some of this hyper-masculine warrior um, street club fighting idea and um, aesthetic, and then is a place where at festivals or at tournaments, um, some recruitment can happen. Yeah, yeah. Um- you know, as you were talking about, you know, the the spaces like, um, you know, the food with the veganism and even the, yeah. the DIY uh, drywall, you know, um, but but let's say the veganism, the yoga, you know, a, a lot of times, you see, I, I think, you know, with the, um, with the definition of, uh, with hostile outsiders making definitions sometimes, mm-hmm. you, you, you run across these... Um, false dichotomies and and when you actually look at let's say the veganism or new ageism and look at the 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 roots of a lot of the philosophies and the movement you see a lot of intertwining with um you know yeah you know with the far right um you know uh, a lot of deep ecology uh is you know is, is is fascist uh uh, in its its origins or, or in its links, definitely. Um, yeah. and, I mean, and even, the, you know, right yeah. back to, to Hitler, it was blood and soil, right? This connection right. between, you know, g- between your genetic entitlements, the land, um, and the way in which that connects to kind of organic, pure, you know, heritage and inheritance of space and, and of sacred land, I think is is really central to the far right in ways but but people tend to think of that like of, of of farming and ecological kinds of environmental claims as belonging to the left in some way. But you're absolutely right. I think these things are much less um, bounded than than we have made them out to be. Yeah, and and then so and so then when you start to ferret out every instance of you know of looking at Indo-European heritage, for example, which is just plain linguistic normal right. um, anthropology but then if 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 you uh, then you start to um uh you know get to this extreme of of burning witches of of every you you start to see it everywhere because mm-hmm. the overlap uh between um you know what what might be considered from a superficial view you know an opposition of right and left and these are the evil people and the, these are the you know um you know, the victims or the good people or whatever yeah. when you start to look at at the ideological roots of all these things it's it's far more complex it's far more intertwined and 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 also you know much of the left uh, you know communism and and anti the other day i was interviewing someone uh, who did a lot of research on uh, Eliphas Levy? I don't know if you know about him, but but yeah. the uh, uh, you know, so he he spanned you know he was a socialist and uh, but you know he was also a an occultist and so he influenced like Crowley and the the magic thing. But he was yes. you know one of the pre-Marxist um, socialists as well as 
as socialism and communism was defining itself and you know uh, before it became material you know historical materialist with Marx. so um the things get very messy when you when you look at it um on uh you know at its roots and then um, we we can get into some messy territory and trying to ferret out you know these uh, these bad ideas and so so I think it's um I, I I think it's it's a very interesting approach you're taking by you know by by looking at these mainstream spaces and and um and and trying to look at the fringes and and you have an uh, an interesting idea you you put out there especially now with covid-19 you talk about herd mm-hmm. immunity and and i think that's it's important because the, the the move to censorship which is to me like the burning witches uh, ideology and trying to ferret out the evil which i think just leads to a lot of you know bad things right uh um the herd immunity approach that you talk about i think is is quite different uh, am I right in interpreting what you're saying? Yeah, and can no, you, elaborate? you are. And it's, you know, it's funny because it's a metaphor. Obviously, I was using, I submitted this book for to go to press before uh, the pandemic hit. But um, so it's a metaphor I've been using for a long time that does, of course, feel a little bit different now. But, yeah. but the, the way that I have been thinking about it all these years is that, you know, we we often meaning we in the mainstream or policymakers or interventionists or experts, you know, um, I think sometimes position terrorism or extremism or the extreme fringes as as if they are a few bad cells, like a tumor that can be isolated, monitored, surveilled, and cut out of society, right? Like get them in jail, do whatever you need to do, like, you know, prosecute. Um, and then we've solved the problem. And yeah. um, I think that if you if you think about it much more as like a virus instead of like a tumor. And again, now that we are facing a virus all the time, it feels funnier to say that, but, but it is a metaphor I've been using a long time, which meaning that there's, you know, the possibility for contagion and and that when we look at how youth are exposed to this and how they get, um, you know, how you can be desensitized to really racist ideas online, for example, by participating in meme creation or viewing a lot of content over time. Um, that, you know, that is more like a contagion and having, and, and even misinformation or conspiracy theories and disinformation and propaganda as well kind of acts that way that it gets, it's, it's, it's creating a kind of herd immunity that, that will inoculate people against these things before they see it, before they encounter it. And, you know, one of the examples I often use in, in the work that I do in my research lab with a team when we're trying to design these interventions. And in many ways, the book, I should say, is sort of like a, a an action plan for this research lab, which yeah. um, launched last November, the Polarization okay. Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, where we test intervention ideas. And so I see it as a kind of roadmap of, for what we're trying to do. And and, um, you know, so we, we often, you know, we often engage on, on these, uh, these kinds of interventions. I just totally lost my train of thought of where I was going with the research lab, um, question on the, on the inoculation, but it's, oh, I know what, which is that, uh, we, um, you know, we use this example sometimes in explaining to people about our work that there is really good public health research, for example, showing that teenagers after years of of work trying to teach teenagers about healthy eating habits, for example, um, by teaching them what the long-term consequences of poor eating choices that they make right now are for their bodies and their health down the line, that had zero impact on their 
choices that they make today, right? It doesn't matter. They don't think of them. They don't think of long-term consequences. They don't worry about that in that way. But when um, researchers actually taught them about how advertising manipulation works and how fast food advertisements were very effective at getting them to make choices that were not in the interest of their own health, then that information changed their choices, the behavior that they made, their behavioral choices right now. And it did so more for boys. And what we know, what what that taught us is that, you know, A, teenagers really do not like to be manipulated and they don't like to find out that they're being manipulated. And B, if you can teach them about the potential for manipulation to happen to them. um, So these guys are going to try to teach you about scapegoats. They're going to try to convert your you know, sense of frustration or isolation into blame. They're going to try to provide misinformation about where COVID-19 comes from or say that it's, you know, and and these are the things that you're going to encounter. Then when they actually encounter it, they recognize it for what it is. And that's kind of the herd immunity approach is, is inoculating people with more information and trying to address this within the mainstream instead of just trying to isolate and kind of cut out and eradicate the the tumor of the extreme fringe, you know, which is the way I think it had been treated for a long time. So it's a, it's a different kind of approach. It's more like pre preventing violent extremism. It's like prevention for everyone. Um, but it's, Mm -hmm. you know, even understanding like online bots, right. That some of the misinformation that you're encountering online isn't even from human beings. It's from, you know, bots that are set up to help polarize this society. And, so you're being manipulated to serve someone else's interest. And that can sound conspirational, but it's also true. And I think it's important for people to understand the potential for them to be pawns in somebody else's objective, whether that's, you know, an objective of getting extreme ideologies put through um, or recruiting or, or enacting violence against others or, um, you know, to try to build some kind of ethnostate or caliphate or whatever it is that, that the potential is there for you to get drawn in and, and have your ideas and your anxieties and your um, sense of anger or betrayal at society or the government or whatever it is um, converted into blame and scapegoating of somebody else who's really, you know, in the end, the innocent victim in this. So that's our approach. And that's what I hope people take away from the book is that, you know, it's, this is, in order to prevent violent extremism, we kind of have to address it, address the the roots of some of the vulnerabilities within the mainstream, rather than only waiting until people are highly radicalized and then trying to bring them back from the edge, which is extremely difficult, if not impossible to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's, that's an important approach because, you know, in, in my own, like looking at the, um, you know, these far right groups and nationalist groups and stuff, one thing that surprised, because, you know, I've, I've looked at these groups for decades now, you know, like in the eighties, uh, and then up to now. And, uh, one thing that surprised me about the, the stuff now in those circles is that, you know, how much black culture is absorbed and used by yes. them or Japanese yeah. anime. I mean, their, their lives yes. are already multicultural yes. you know, and, and e- even in the far right, you know, I mean, yeah. um, whereas in the eighties, that would not be, they, they would want to, you know, purify their, their, um, their, their, you know, sociological or, or content exactly. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's, it's even the, even the far right is multicultural. And, yeah. and, and what you see is that there is, you know, this, um, 
they they have a critique of modern society and they want mm-hmm. to be in touch with their history with people and and you talk about this with masculinity with spiritual yeah. values with order so there are real legitimate concerns they have yes. that aren't addressed yes. and then and then even in their their farthest right ideology like you know like for instance i was I, I don't know if you know about these moon man raps, yes. right? Yeah. Right, but they're they're raps, right? Yes. And they're yeah. using they're using yeah. black cultural forms to yeah. to express white supremacy. There, there's you know it's yeah. it's hilarious and it's well, in, well, in, it's, you know, in my in it. my last book I talked about because I was studying t-shirts. You know, I was looking at um you know I worked with three professional photographers who captured you know thousands and thousands of photographs across the country in Germany. And then eventually I interviewed young people as well and showed them some of those photos and asked them what they thought they were seeing in the t-shirts, but, and in the images, but, you know, I would see t-shirts of German neo-Nazis wearing Che Guevara t-shirts, for example, or a t-shirt with a Gandhi quote on the back, right? Palestinian scarves, right? And so I called those using a drawing on art history and, uh, um, and, and the art community, they call those traveling images, which are you know, where you get images and symbols that that actually can carry from one place to another, from one context to another, and they get ideologically emptied out of their meaning and then reinfused with new meaning, right? And that's essentially what these guys are doing. But it it's, you know, it they they this is back to that kind of choose your own adventure. They pull the parts that appeal to them. You'll see run DMC logos now used with um, the German word for Hocken, for, for swastika, Hockenkreuz, but with the vowels taken out of it, but looking like a Run DMC logo um, right. on t-shirts, right? And now I see those t-shirts in the States um, that have the words white boy, but with the vowels of W-H-T-B-O-W or something, but in the colors of the Run DMC logo, even sold as a Run DMC. Um, right. It says like Run DMC slash white boy t-shirt. And so, you know, we as casual observers think these are totally full of contradictions. But if you dig into, you know, why would Gandhi or Che Guevara or the Palestinian scarf be appealing to because they see themselves as freedom fighters, as, you know, um, as people who are fighting an oppressive regime, as, um, you know, as as people who are going to be part of the resistance to the mainstream or to, you know, um, governments that are suppressing them. And so they they take the parts of the meaning that are meaningful to them and then and then reinfuse it. So I think it makes perfect sense, but from the outside, it's very sometimes hard to grasp. And um, it's easier to understand if you understand the way cultural fragments work across ideologies and are, and are drawn upon and, you know, taken. And and if you approach it that way, I think um, you just understand the much broader range of cultural places and spaces where, where you can encounter these ideologies because it's not as fixed as people think. Right. It's not just like yeah. you're only going to run into this in a backwoods militia and, and, you know, an Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. And, and, but that also is a harder ask, I think, for people who sometimes feel safer and want to think that they have a protection that it couldn't be their family or their son or their neighbor, you know, who's attracted right. to this because they don't look like that and they don't have a swastika tattoo and, you know, they don't, you know, and, and so, it's, it's much easier, as I've said before, you know, to, to, um, to understand ideas as extreme if they come in that other aesthetic package than in somebody who looks like kind of the neighbor next door. 
So I think it's challenging for people to look at the mainstream and try to approach it from within that way. But I would argue has a greater potential for success. Yeah, I I think it's kind of like the yin yang sort of, um, you know, that Taoist symbol with the with the dot in the good, you know, the white and the black. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. It's like in every good, there's a, you know, there's a little evil in every evil, mm-hmm. there's a little good. Like, because, you know, for instance, you might be a vegetarian, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and then, you know, you, you might subscribe to certain values that you'll see, oh my God, I actually share this with far right people. Right. But does that mean that you should not be a vegetarian anymore? Right. I don't think so. Right. You know, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a patriot and, oh, you know, oh my God, I, I share certain things with you know these extreme people does that mean i shouldn't be patriotic anymore right. you know, the, the, these sorts of uh, of things um yeah that that a lot of these ideas are mainstream are normal are legitimate are uh, but right. uh they but get because, co-opted or they get converted yeah. right yeah, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know one of the other thing i often tell people you know um again this goes back to sort of my last book which blended into this one anyway but you know, I would often get pushback in the beginning years of doing that work on t-shirts, you know, from people, it wasn't just t-shirts with all of style haircuts, everything, but you know, who would say like, isn't this just the same as me being a punk in the 1980s? Like, won't they just grow out of it? Aren't you being alarmist? Like, why does this matter? And, you know, one of the, I would point to research that we have that shows, for example, that consumption matters if you consider yourself you know, like a green consumer and you buy a hybrid car or you make a commitment to buy eco, it actually strengthens your identity as an eco person, right? Like if you, Mm -hmm. if you buy kosher or you buy halal or you, you know, um, support black owned businesses because, you know, that those things can also strengthen your identities, that consumption is part of an act that can make you feel more connected to your political views or your identity, your own identity. So why wouldn't it be the same for extremists? Like, why do we think that extremists don't actually have, you know, patterns of consumption or music, or even we've seen with Islamist extremists, there's a guy named Thomas Heghammer who's looked at poetry and, you know, poetry for Islamist extremists um, plays a really big role in their emotional connection. And, you know, so why wouldn't people, you know, it's, they're not just pure ideologues all the time, right? right? They do these other things that influence their identity. And so a message on a t-shirt that is anti-immigrant, for example, might buying that t-shirt, the act of buying it and then wearing it around is a statement, you know, you're walking around like a walking billboard and, and it in a way can have an, you know, an influence back in a way that can potentially strengthen your identity or, or your beliefs. And so Um, I'm not saying it does for sure, but it has that potential, just like buying a hybrid car has the potential to make you feel like a more of a green, green person or an ecological person. And so, you know, people do seem to get that. Then when I say that, I'm like, oh, yes, you're right. I do have a hybrid car. (laughs) I do, you know, bring my own grocery bags to the store because I, that's my identity. And I feel proud of that. And I, you know, I'm not using plastic or I'm not, I have my glass straw that I carry around or whatever it is that people do Mm -hmm. that influences the choices they make behaviorally all day long um that then strengthens their own sense of self as a green person is the same i think with extremists and the choices that they make about where they purchase things or what businesses they support or what clothes they wear and and so these things have a role to play in ways that i think we have not really dug deep enough into right right now um i i know i've i've kept you over and <laughs> okay. um 
it's it's uh, I mean it's been a very interesting conversation it we has could go been. on and on but but the way I the, the way I usually like to to end off these interviews is by uh, you know asking you you know where you see this phenomenon going what yeah. message you'd like to leave your readers with uh, and if there's any other projects you're working on right now you've actually touched on all three of them yes. already but maybe <laughs> it's a way to you can just yeah. um, bring it all together so we can close. Yeah, well, I, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation too. It's been wide ranging and fascinating and uh, I hope your listeners also find it interesting. Um, I would say, you know, uh, I mean, my hope is that, as I said earlier, I think my, my complete hope is that my expertise becomes irrelevant, you know, that it, that it's, mm-hmm. that it's no longer, um, needed that, that we evolve into something different and there, you know, that, that our right youth culture is no longer um, something that I would be called on to explain or address because it's just faded into the real true fringes of society and gotten so small as to be insignificant. Um, so that would be my hope. My fear, of course, is that that's not the case, that we are continuing to move. Um, and particularly, my biggest concern right now has been that uh, in this country alone with 70 million young people, you know, having their lives almost entirely converted online uh, starting in March, that we have just a, a very high intersection of what I call a kind of a perfect storm of conditions that could be creating more radicalization right now. Meaning, um, you know, we know they've already, FBI and other authorities have issued warnings about the increased um, vulnerabilities to child for child predators, for example, right now. And I think it's the, the same kinds of concerns about recruitment and radicalization online, which is that anytime young people are spending so much more time online at a time when they're more highly isolated, they lack a sense of belonging, there's anxiety and depression and economic precarity because they families may have lost jobs or they've lost jobs, the, the vulnerabilities are higher and um, the circulation of propaganda is also higher. And so uh, I do have concerns for what happens kind of post pandemic, if we have had a lot of circulation of extremist propaganda and radicalization happening during the pandemic in terms of where we are, you know, 18 months from now or something. Um, And so, and I know a lot of people have concerns about what's going to happen around the election in the U.S. in terms of militia mobilization, potential for violence in the streets. And I think that is also a real concern. Um, But to end on a more positive note, I do run a research lab that is testing interventions and we have uh, come out with several interesting things this fall. People can 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 turn to www.american.edu backslash peril, P-E-R-I-L, to download a free copy of our Parents and Caregivers Guide to Online Radicalization, for example, which we're building out into resources for mental health professionals, to teachers, and for coaches to help them better recognize signs of radicalization and feel more empowered on how to intervene and where to get more help. Um, we have an animated video on the Boogaloo scenes that came out with the Bertelsmann Foundation this fall that we're also um, hoping will help the public better understand the role of uh, misinformation and disinformation that they encounter online at mobilizing potential uh, recruitment into militias and uh, civil war type groups. So we're, we're trying a lot of different visual and um, video based work to try to reach people. Uh, on social media and in ways where they're spending so much time online to offer them better understandings and try to reach the public in ways that provide support. So, um, you know, we'll see, we're, we're still in the midst of all the impact studies of that work. So we should have evidence in a few months about 
whether and how those move the needle and helping the public better recognize and respond. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to make an impact. Oh, well, well, thanks for that. And, and I wish you all the best um, with, with those projects. And, and Thank you. Uh, sounds, it's very important work. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's really uh, been a really, really rich and rewarding conversation and I uh, very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much. It, uh, likewise, it's been very informative and, and enjoyable. Great. So once again, the book is Hate in the Homeland, the new global far right, published by Princeton University Press this year in 2020. And we've been speaking to the author, Cynthia Miller Idris. It's been a pleasure. Same. Thank you also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.